Welcome to this Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is August 21st, 2018, and we are joined uh, by Christine Rosen. Good to have you back, by the way, Christine. Thank you, Charlie. Good to be here. And by David Byler, who is our resident number cruncher, who's going to talk about uh, how to uh, lose unlosable races, which seems to be a, uh, I don't know, it, it seems to be a thing in, in American politics, particularly among uh, among Republicans. We're going to get to that in a moment. But, Christine, I want to start off with your piece that you have up on the Weekly Standard right now. What happens when it's hashtag him too? And this is the latest development, the Asia Ar- Argento. Is it Argento? Argento. Uh, Argento uh, story, you know, very, very prominent. Uh, uh, actress who um, and and leader of the Me Too movement who apparently has her own issues. So let's talk about um, our uh, Asia Argento and the dangers of Me Too hypocrisy. What do you mean? Well, the story that emerged the other day, thanks to some reporting from the New York Times, is that Asia Argento, who has accused Harvey Weinstein of sexually assaulting her and became, as you said, a very prominent spokeswoman for the Me Too movement, turns out had paid $380,000 to a former child star named Jimmy Bennett um, to hush up a, an encounter that the two of them had when he was just 17 years old. Um, so in this happened in California. She invited him. She'd stayed in touch with him. They'd worked on a movie together, and he'd played her son in the movie And he, when he was around seven years old. They'd kept in touch over the years. She invited him to a hotel room saying that they were going to talk about new projects. She plied him with alcohol. She instigated a sexual encounter, which later he felt to be coercive. Um, this is statutory rape under California law, and actually the news today is showing that um, California legal officials are looking into this as a potential statutory rape case. But he talked to a lawyer and uh, sent her a notice that he was intending to sue her because when she came out against Harvey Weinstein and was uh, speaking out so much on behalf of the Me Too movement, it evidently triggered these um, memories that Mr. Bennett had. So when she received that notice, she quickly and quietly settled with him, although she did not have him sign a non-disclosure agreement. So this is where we are. She um, has not responded to all of these stories, a lot of her advocates, people like Rose McGowan, have have done a 180-degree turnaround in their messaging. So when a woman was accused, it's suddenly, let's be gentle, let's make sure all the facts are in, we don't know the truth of the situation, which is, of course, the opposite of what McGowan had said earlier when when it was a man accused. Then it was, believe the women, you know, get a spine, you're a moral coward if you don't denounce this immediately. So we're seeing here what happens in a lot of social justice movements, which is that sometimes one of their own turns out to be the predator, not just the prey. And the Me Too movement needs to confront this and decide how they're going to deal with these allegations. Yeah, Rose, Rose McGowan has uh, not minced any words at any point. Uh, she put out a tweet. I uh, just want to read the, the, the text of it. This is from uh, last November. It's quite simple. All, uh, all who have worked with known predators should do three simple things. Number one, believe survivors. Number two, apologize for putting your careers in wallets before what was right. Three, grab a spine and denounce. If you do not do these things, you are still more cowards hashtag rose army and her response to the latest allegation none of us know the truth of the situation and i'm sure more will be revealed be gentle now how much of that is the one of us and how much of that is 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 just the the, the double standard that that uh, you know that men are beasts and predators and women we have a hard time thinking of women as being predators 
It's a little of both, I think. I mean, the the idea that women can't prey on men, um, first of all, statistically, it is much more likely to be a man who preys on a woman in terms of sexual harassment, mm-hmm. sexual assault. This this is a truth. We also know, look, Asya Argento herself was a victim of abuse. Often people who are victims of abuse later on become abusers themselves. We know all these things to be true. But I think the bigger question that we have to ask about the Me Too movement now is one that a lot of more conservative and, and um, equal rights feminists have been asking since it it, it hit the news, which is, what about due process? How do you handle these allegations? How are we as a society going to move forward and make sure that we punish wrongdoing and that victims um, see their uh, harassers come to justice? How do we do that without becoming an, an, a mob? Um, especially if you look at how the Twitter mob works, um, This many, many men have have lost their careers, lost their livelihoods swiftly. I mean, not not just lost their. I mean, they've been annihilated. Exactly. I mean, it, it, this is it's really extraordinary. I mean, it's one thing to be fired from a job, but there are people who are in the media in Hollywood who I can't imagine what they would ever do, even remotely close to their former professions. Right. And I think, look, I don't have a lot of sympathy for these men who are preying on women. Um, But I think that the larger question is one that all feminists should embrace, which is due process and equal rights before the law. And I think there's a separate case that's going on in academia right now at New York University, um, a Title IX investigation into a, a feminist scholar who's considered a star in her field who was harassing a male graduate student. And a similar kind of closing of the feminist ranks happened around her as well, where prominent feminist scholars, you know, kind of smeared her um, accuser and and did the textbook uh, actions of the kind of defensive um, male behavior that feminists were calling out when Harvey Weinstein and other other predators uh, were doing it. It was fine for them to do it when the accused was a woman and the accuser was a man. So well, I let's do talk th- about let's let's talk about this because this is really an extraordinary story um, on on so many different levels. Uh, can you pronounce her name? She's a she's a New York University professor of German literature. Yes, Avital Ronell. Um, she. Um, she and, and, and she's been found guilty. I mean, the the, yes. the the conclusion of harassing a male graduate student. She was suspended from teaching for the next academic year. The irony is that uh, she is a lesbian. He is gay. Mm-hmm. That's which, right. You know, you know, I mean, obviously putting spins upon spins here. <laughs> but I I thought it was fascinating the backstory that you're 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 focusing on here, which is the way well-known you know well-known feminist scholars, Judith Butler, who's the president elect of the Modern Language Association, uh, rallied uh, to this professor's uh, defense and drafted a letter to the university, which was assigned by which was signed by, I mean, quite a few uh, progressive scholars from all around the country, including Harvard, Berkeley, Yale, Columbia, uh, NYU basically defending her despite allegations that would have been regarded as absolutely horrific if we'd been talking about a male. Oh, it was completely unprofessional the way she behaved. She she would send, you know, uh, sexually explicit emails. She, um, you know, she invited herself over to his apartment to stay for a few days. She asked him to get into her bed. When, she, when he told her that he was uncomfortable with this, look, she's his advisor. His career in academia depends on her, um, you know, giving him good recommendations and, and fostering good career prospects for him. This is how it works in academia. Um, and so he went along, even though to his friends he would say, Send emails saying, you know, oh, the witch, this horrible woman. I'm so uncomfortable. This is terrible. But what can I do? I'm, you know, she's my advisor. So um, 
she made some of the same uh, statements that men who've been accused of harassment make, which is, well, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't rebuff me and he played along. And we were just having this kind of fun, campy, you know, postmodern communications because we have this, you know, he's a gay man and I'm a queer woman. So she tried to justify it in all these ways. And, and again, she's on the defensive here. But the shocking thing to me was the way many other scholars bought her line of reasoning in a way that they wouldn't had she been a man and and their absolute outrage that some that a man would dare use title 9 which is a gender neutral statute um to pursue his case um, yeah, this, this is a this is a larger point because they are articulating essentially that that somehow it is wrong for any man to use title nine and they are will, will articulate this you know arguing that somehow it twists title nine to use this against a an abuser who is a feminist. Exactly. And it should be noted there, you know, there was one professor from UT Austin who said, you know, I can't believe he's using Title IX and kind of, you know, uh, capturing the Me Too movement's activism to use for his own malicious purposes. First of all, his claim and his whole case happened before the Me Too movement was sparked. So he was not doing this as a result of some, you know, anti-Me Too effort. He was just a graduate student. He's one, by the way, who likely will never get hired in his field after all of this. Um, The kind of horrible things that been said about him um, and his opportunities will now forever be limited. So this guy has actually suffered and the university agreed with his claim. Um, And I'll point out that although she's been placed on leave, no one's been able to confirm whether that's unpaid leave. So she might be, in fact, getting a year-long paid vacation and still collecting her salary. Um, I think the thing that's important here to remember is, again, if you're an equal equal rights feminist and you believe that men and women should be treated treated equally in the eyes of the law, then you cannot make the arguments that these feminists, these radical feminist scholars are making because they're trying to argue that the law is compensatory and it's about the outcome for women rather than that it's about equal justice before the law. So when they see a man use Title IX, they become enraged because they say, no, no, that's for us. That's for women. Well, they're wrong. And then they've been making this argument now for quite some time. You you quote Catherine McKinnon arguing that that since laws are made basically by men, they can't fully protect women. And you quote her saying most rapists are men, most legislators are men, boy, the logic here, most judges are men, and the law of rape was created when women weren't even allowed to vote. So that means not only that all the people who wrote it were rapists, I have to pause here, but they are a member of the group who do rape. Exactly. Um, I'm sorry. So that means not that all the people who wrote it were rapists, but that all the members of the group who do rape, she explained in a 2006 interview. And as you point out, by that logic, then all of the civil rights laws could only be applied in one direction. Exactly. And I think that although it's rarely said as explicitly as Catherine McKinnon has said it over the years, you see this um, line of reasoning in a lot of feminist jurisprudence, um, critical legal studies, you, you see these arguments being made. And I think what was what, what was stunning about this case with Asia Argento is that, and as well as with um, Avital Ronell at NYU, is that now you're seeing how these pretty radical um, views have trickled down into the mainstream. So the argument that, you know, the, the law applies to women one way and men another because, you know, men are pigs, um, this used to be what angry, you know, bra-burning extremist feminists would say, and most people would shrug their shoulders and go, oh, please. But now it's mainstream. It's mainstream. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say this. Even this blatant hypocrisy on the part of Me Too activists is seen as okay. Now, I will say there have been some good pieces and good um, posts from Me Too 
uh, friendly types who said, you know, we can't do this. We can't defend this. This has got to be dealt with. We've got to be, we've got to be fair. We've got to be transparent about abuse is abuse, no matter what. Um, so this isn't a monolithic approach, but it's it's far too common given um, the claims of um, sort of the justice claims that they've been making, and rightly so. Um, you can't have it both ways, ladies. So your your bottom line in this piece is uh, the stark choice that Me Too leaders have to make? Yes, they have to decide how they're going to handle this case because it won't be the last one. I mean, we were already seeing there have been several local and state female officials who've been accused of harassment, found guilty, lost their positions. The more that women move into positions of power, the more likely that's to occur. These are about power relationships. These are about unjust behavior and someone who's in power abusing that power to obtain um, access to someone who is an unwilling participant in a sexual relationship. That can happen between men and women when a woman is in power, when a man is in power. Right now, it still happens more often that the man is the perpetrator, but we're seeing more cases of women. We need to treat those with the same fairness, due process, and sense of justice that we do when it's a man. And all of these cases are very, very difficult. And I, as, 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 a, as, a, as a man, I struggle with all of this because I look at these stories, you know, particularly the, the more classic stories, and and I wonder how did these men think that they were going to get away with it? And of course, you know, watching the explosion of women coming forward. And I, I mentioned this before we started the podcast. And I certainly don't do not want to you know betray any confidence here or, or talk about it. But you know, I recently heard a story of of a very powerful woman um, who was the subject of what uh, I think was unambiguously uh, sexual harassment by a very prominent, very powerful man. And the sort of the, you know, how shocking it was, but also it sort of, you know, reinforced how difficult it is in these power relationships for the victim to come forward, no matter how prominent or powerful they might be because of the consequences of it. Because, you know, that person is, you know, either has, you know, it was controls over the levers of power in Hollywood or television or politics and so the pressures are so overwhelming against women or you know men in these particular cases coming forward because look you you do as as you mentioned this young man who came forward at NYU is probably never going to get a job in academia because he he did this mm-hmm. so you know that's the other part of it I mean, I'm all in favor of and very strongly in favor of due process but I think one of the things we're just realizing is is how much stuff we're never going to hear about and the price that people have to pay for doing the right thing. That's true. It's a very good point. All right. With, uh, today's, I want to talk with uh, David Byler about uh, unlosable elections. Uh, the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by RX Bar. Look, RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. They believe in the power of transparency, and they let the core ingredients do all the talking. All of them are listed on the front of the package, and you're going to recognize the RX bar at the shelf. They're the ones who have two egg, they have egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit and spices like sea salt or cinnamon. RX bars come in 14 delicious flavor varieties, mango pineapple, chocolate hazelnut, peanut butter and berries, uh, coconut chocolate, mixed berry, blueberry, maple sea salt, it goes on and on and on. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, so you don't have to feel guilty about it. And the best part about them is that 
you can take them anywhere on the go. And I've mentioned before, anytime that I get on an airplane, I usually stop at the airport. I'm going to put a few of them in my bag uh, because they will substitute for a meal. They'll keep you going until you can eat something else. And, and, and I find them very, very valuable. And here's a special offer for listeners of the podcast. For 25% off your first order and free shipping, visit rxbar.com standard and enter promo code standard at checkout. That's rxbar.com standard. And enter promo code STANDARD at checkout for 25% off your first order. Okay, so David Byler, one of the, I think, uh, flashbacks that a lot of Republicans have uh, are the number of U.S. Senate races in particular that were, you know, completely winnable, that were blown by a sketchy candidate. And I mean, some of us, you know, still have... Uh, are still traumatized by remembering the whole Christine O'Donnell, Sharon Engel, Todd Aiken stories. Uh, mm-hmm. You have an interesting piece, How to Throw a Winnable Election, and you say there are three examples of what not to do. Let's walk through them. Right. So my piece goes through three states with gubernatorial contests this cycle where some combination of candidates, past administration, uh, all of those factors are sort of leading the race to be a lot more competitive than it probably should be. Uh, There's Kansas, which is a red state. Uh, There's Connecticut, which is a blue state. And then it's a little bit of a different condition, but I put Illinois in this basket too, which is a blue state with a Republican governor. So the situation, I can take them state by state or individually or however you want to do it. Let's let's start with Kansas, because that seems to be the most impossible to lose Uh, except that Republicans uh, nominated Chris Kobach to be their candidate for governor. Exactly. So there's two things going on in Kansas uh, that matter. The race is currently rated sort of on average by handicappers as a sort of leans Republican race, which really shouldn't be the case in a state like Kansas that is solidly red in basically every presidential election and Senate race and so on and so forth. And two things have happened there. First, uh, Sam Brownback, sort of the uh, outgoing governor who who uh, was elected in 2010 and 2014, and then uh, took a job at the State Department earlier this year, he enacted some tax cuts that basically worked in the opposite way that he had hoped and intended. Uh, They led to massive budget shortfalls, and they failed to sort of spur the economic growth that he might have hoped for. And that led to him having a really low approval rating and sort of hurting the Republican brand statewide. So that's kind of problem number one. Problem number two is Chris Kobach, who uh, you people who are listening to this podcast probably Mm -hmm. know him best from President Trump's uh, sort of voter fraud commission, where Trump threw out this uh, really wild, I think, crazy stat about, you know, three to five million illegal votes cast. And that being why he didn't win the popular vote. There's Basically, no grounding for it, but Kobach was essentially the person who was steering that committee, and he's one of these people. It's kind of like, I, you know, the, how the, those magicians have the you know ribbon or whatever <laughs> that they keep pulling out of their sleeve. That's the way that Chris Kobach is with like controversies. Uh, he's been held in contempt of court. He uh, has uh, sort of trafficked in birtherism. If you look back at sort of his radio show, you get more and more things along those lines. And uh, he is essentially kind of the model of a really controversial, bad candidate. The race still leads. Yeah, it's still Kansas, though, right? Okay. It is is Kansas. 
Yeah, it's two things. It's Kansas, which means that it's kind of a three-party state with conservative Republicans, moderate Republicans, and Democrats. Um, so that's one thing. But there's also a third-party candidate, Greg Orman, who ran for Senate in 2014. Uh, the Democratic candidate dropped out in that race, and he was kind of the a de facto Democrat. So it's possible that Kobach still runs pretty poorly and wins with a plurality because of the Democratic candidate and Orman sort of splitting the vote. Uh, but at any rate, it's if you have a state that's as red as Kansas and you have a, you know, state legislatures that are creating a bench of possible candidates and all these different things, it really shouldn't be competitive, but it kind of is. And uh, so that has a lot of lessons of what not to do. Okay, Illinois, this is in my backyard. Bruce Rauner, um, a conventional wisdom is he's the incumbent Republican, uh, that he's pretty much a dead man walking. Yeah, I think that's roughly correct. So Bruce Rauner, um, he's a little different. Uh, the case of Illinois is a little different than Kansas because Illinois is a blue state and Rauner is a Republican governor. You can contrast Rauner with a couple of these other blue state Republican governors who have done really well. In Vermont, you have Bill Scott. In Maryland, you have Larry Hogan. In Massachusetts, you have Charlie Baker. All three of them seem to, to varying degrees, essentially be cruising to re-election despite their state being really blue. And they've kind of done that via competent governance and uh, either soft peddling or sometimes going left on social issues, but sort of just emphasizing the fiscal stuff that comes mm -hmm. with uh, them being Republicans. And Rauner has kind of, I don't know, got the worst of both worlds. He <laughs> alienated his base by essentially saying he wasn't going to do much on social issues and then uh, signing a very pro-choice bill that angered a lot of his Republican constituents. He only won uh, renomination by a couple points. And at the same time, he sort of failed to show the same competence that a Baker or a Hogan or a Scott did. Uh, he, you know, struggled for a long time with these budget deals. So you kind of alienate sort of swing voters who put you in office in an effort to, you know, be competent and solve problems. And you simultaneously alienate your base uh, by going against uh, positions that they're into. And you end up being, I, I think the status correct, the uh, least popular incumbent running for re-election in any gubernatorial race this year. I had to do a double take when I saw that you, you said in the most recent morning consult poll that had his approval rating at 27%. Yeah, that is, that is low, low. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really bad number. Okay, so, so Connecticut, uh, this is one that, right. I, that, that, that I didn't know anything about until I read your piece. So Connecticut's sort of been flying under the radar. It's uh, it's an interesting case. You can almost think of it as the reverse Kansas. So Dan Malloy, uh, the current Democratic governor, has chosen not to run for a third term. He sort of won uh, very narrowly in 2010 and then won by a little bit more in 2014. And uh, in 2010, uh, Connecticut, like a, many other states, was still kind of reeling from the recession. They still had a uh, number of things that were problematic in their economy. And Molloy essentially failed to fix it. He, in he enacted tax hikes, and those tax hikes failed to solve the budget deficit. And companies like General Electric and other businesses left the state. Um, it's one of the few states that sort of hasn't gotten back all of the jobs lost in the recession, according to uh, one report by, I think it was a state agency. I have it in my piece. Um, but essentially, you have the reverse situation of Brownback, where 
Brownback got the bad end of doing, got the worst of both worlds with a tax cut. Malloy got the worst of both worlds with a tax hike. And you have kind of a, a moderate Republican, uh, Stefanowski, who's, you know, business minded. And I guess you would say Connecticut-ish as far as Republicans go. Uh, you have Ned Lamont on the Democratic side, which, you know, remember him. He primaried Joe Lieberman and then uh got beat by Lieberman in the general election back in uh, 2006, if I remember correctly. So you have that race there, which is widely rated as something uh, sort of toss up to tilt Democratic range. And so if you have really bad fiscal mismanagement, if you're in office for eight years and you fail to solve the major problems that you set out to solve, then your party is going to be in trouble. Yeah, these are almost textbook uh, cases. Um, one, one, one last question, uh, Christine. I know you didn't write the piece, but uh, I was I was really, really gratified to see that uh, that Steve Hayes did a piece on Rand Paul this morning for the Standard because it's been yes. it's been rattling around in the back of my head that uh, that. That, that Rand Paul has really worked hard to distinguish himself as uh, one of the worst members of the United States Senate, um, both for being ineffective uh, and for taking uh, crackpot positions. Um, and, and it's interesting how long people thought, well, Rand Paul you know, is not to be confused with Ron Paul. He's the, he's the, the younger uh, Paul, but peace up right now, Rand Paul Russian stooge. <laughs> Yes. Um, remember, writers don't get to choose their headlines, but it's an right. excellent piece. It's it's up on our website now. Everyone should go read it. Um, it just lays out in uh, compelling detail just how awful Senator Paul's efforts have been to just um, – justify what Trump is doing with Russia. Um, you know, he talks about meeting the uh, the head of the Libertarian Party of Russia and says things like, you know, oh, the Libertarian message in Russia. I mean, it's not perfect, but uh, he's he's not allowed on the ballot, of course, but, you know, at least he was able to talk to us. I mean, the, the kind of rationalization that has to go on in order to justify a regime that literally won't allow a candidate on the ballot, but that Rand is, is boasting is, you know, it's great for the Libertarian Party. It's it's well worth a read. Um, well, and, and, and you, you point out this paradox here it's in the subhead. What does the kooky libertarian see in the authoritarian Putin regime? Exactly. I mean, that's Paul's thing. He's a libertarian. What is it about Vladimir Putin's thugocracy that is attractive to a quote unquote libertarian? I can respect libertarians without necessarily agreeing with them, but it is beyond bizarre that he that has the fascin that the fascination of a libertarian for a an authoritarian strongman. Well, there is, I, I think, you know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, I suppose. And, you know, the, Rand Paul hates the neoconservatives. And um, much of what he is talking about lately is, you know, attacking Bill Crystal, attacking the neocons. He gets his facts all jumbled, of course. But th there's a weird sense in which the cult of personality that, that Putin has um, developed for himself, it's very strange. You can understand it if it's Russians who are buying into it. But yes. to see a United States senator buying into it, um, it's disturbing we live in strange times don't we yes <laughs> christine rosen and david byler thanks so much for joining me i appreciate it very much and thank you for listening to the daily standard podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again